the kingdom of God is as multifaceted and mysterious as our creator. A kingdom we only see now through a glass darkly. Though we can't picture it fully, God's kingdom is the story told in scripture, from the garden to the city. And in the middle of the story, God chose to reveal his kingdom in a new way. The gospel is not only Jesus coming and dying to save us from our sins, it's also the story of God establishing his dwelling, dominion, and dynasty in the world. We live as both citizens and strangers, prisoners of hope in this shadow kingdom, all while knowing it's not our true home, that something better is coming, that God's perfect kingdom is coming. gives me all day to fiddle around up here. I was told that I have terrible posture because my pulpit is too low, so we'll see if it goes better with a taller pulpit. We'll find out. You can tell me at the end of the night what you think. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We're continuing our series on the kingdom of God. Whenever you hear that word, just a quick vocab recap. Whenever you hear the, the term kingdom of God, you can just think of it as God's rule and reign on the earth. Not a physical place, but the idea of God's rule and reign, lordship over the earth. We've been talking about it with the concepts of dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. Dwelling that God wants to live among his people. He's established a kingdom on earth for his presence to, to dwell with us and among us. He's drawn us into his presence. He's not just a distant God up in heaven, but he is a personal God who wants personal relationship with each and every one of us. He, he, he's created humanity as this dynasty, rulers of the kingdom who are, who are going to rule and reign with Christ both now and forever throughout eternity. And, and then we are to take dominion over the earth and expand God's kingdom into every facet of life. And, and what we found is that the kingdom of God is not a, dictator, a dictatorship with fearful inhabitants, but it's a glorious monarchy with an all-wise, all-good king and militant patriots who ruthlessly fight evil and advance the cause of justice, all to the glory of God. We're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we started last week, and this is a picture of what it looks like to live as citizens in the kingdom of God. Citizens of God's kingdom will be strangers in the world around them, and in the same way, citizens of the world will be strangers in God's kingdom. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Hopefully I gave you enough time to turn there. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. Don't worry, we'll go faster than you think we will. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar 
And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said that those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what rewards do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Long passage of scripture, long section, but, but the reason we read this together is that, that all of Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 is one sermon that Jesus preached on, on this mountain, and, and so what can happen is we, we can kind of take bits and pieces, and, and we can make this sermon say something that it doesn't. We can take a, a little piece, a little chunk of this sermon, like, uh, like the, this, this section on, on retaliation, um, where it says, where is it? Let me, let me see where it is. An eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And we could take that verse and we could turn that into a whole sermon in theology on why Christians should never, like we should just be pushovers and let people just mess with us and ruin our lives. But we, we need to take this entire sermon in context. We need to look at what Jesus is doing in the whole thing. I wish that we could read all three chapters, five, six, and seven. Unfortunately, none of us have time for that. As fun as that would be, imagine, imagine, uh, imagine a group where we just sit and read long portions of scripture and be able to get the word of God in the way that it was meant to be read and understood. Just think about that for a couple weeks. We'll come back to that. 
But what we want to do is, is we want to continue the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we set it up. We said Jesus' followers will be a unique people marked by a high moral character that in turn influences the people around them. And this week we're continuing and we're seeing what does this high moral character look like. So last week's sermon, this week's sermon, it's almost like they're part of a long ongoing series about the book of Matthew. So, so you can think of these as all kind of coming together. So last week we talked about this morality. This week we're talking about what does this look like, the moral character of Jesus' followers. And here's my thesis, and you can fill in your blanks here. Citizens of God's kingdom live by a strict moral code not to earn God's love and affection, but to demonstrate it to the world around them. Citizens of the kingdom live by a strict moral code, not to earn God's love and affection, but to demonstrate it to the world around them. This is the, the theme of, of what Jesus is doing in this passage. By the way, if you flip your note sheets over, you'll see small group questions already there. So you can be thinking through answering those. If, if, if something jumps in your head that you're like, I want to share that in small group later, that's why we did that for you. We gave it to you as a resource. Feel free to use it. If you don't want to use it, you just want to lock it in and take your notes, go for it. It's totally up to you. Just thought I'd throw it out there that you have those. But God has a law. God has a law. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. God has a law that he has made before, before any of, of us were here. God had a law. Before the world began, God had a law. God's law is not based on just random principles and ideas. God didn't, God didn't throw things in a hat and shake it up and say, um, no murder. And uh, adultery is bad. And go to church on Sundays. And uh, that, that's not how this worked. God looked at his own personal moral character and he, he created the, the law of God, all, all the rules that he gives in scripture, everything we see on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, I want my people to reflect my character. So when we read about the law of God that Jesus is talking about, when we read through this sermon as Jesus is giving a new law to the people of God for his new kingdom, we can remember that these are not arbitrary rules and ideas. This wasn't random. This was chosen. This was specifically picked because this is what's going to reflect God's character to the world. When we encounter the law of God, we, we, all have, we all have a way that we will approach God's law. We will either be minimalists or we will be legalists, and, and I'll unpack those two terms. But we'll be either minimalists or legalists, and this is going to change when it suits us. We jump back and forth between these two perspectives. When we encounter God's law, we can often encounter it, and I, I think this is the way that our culture specifically encounters God's law. We look at God's law from a minimalistic perspective. We look at it and we say, what is the bare minimum that I can do to satisfy the requirements that God has put on me? So I'm going to go to church on Sunday and every once in a while on a Wednesday and I'll read my Bible and pray when I feel about it because that's what people have told me to do and that's good enough. We will look at God's law and we'll pick and choose the things that work for us. I personally really like all the rules about no violence. I'm not a really violent person. I don't really love the rules about lust. That's just me. You have your own way that you approach God's law. You have your own verses that you love. You have your own verses that you simply ignore and skip over. We compromise with God's law, and we say, well, I can do this, kind of. I can kind of follow that law, so I'll do what I can and ignore the rest. God's got the rest, right? There's grace, free grace. We will approach the law with minimalism because we want freedom. Another way that we can approach the law, and, and we all do this as well, 
is with legalism. The idea is that as, as a legalist, I'm going to apply every jot and tittle. Who's a rule follower? Some, some, some of us are just naturally gifted, and don't, don't be embarrassed about it. Don't be shy about it. Some of us just naturally, it is easy to follow rules. We enjoy just, we enjoy when someone gives it to us. Do this, and do this, and do this, and don't do that, and don't do that. We look at it and say, cool, I've got this. Let's go. I'm good. I, I don't fit in that category. I have a tough time with rules. Rules and I have, have a poor relationship. But, but different people fit in different categories. And so some of us fit in this legalist category. And, and we will look at God's law and we will apply it strictly and we will follow it to the T. And why would you ever, ever, ever c- c- consider doing something like that? Because it's just, it's against the law. Why would you do it? Why would you be angry? God has a law. Don't do it. Ari's like, yeah, of course. Duh. Isn't that how everyone thinks? Yeah. Some weird people do. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love, I love our legalists. They're the only reason that we have order in the world. If the world was run by people like me, oh man, we would be in trouble. But, but what we can do as legalists is we'll re- apply the law religiously to every aspect of my life. But then also, I want to apply the law religiously. And this is where the rest of us fall in. I'm going to apply the law religiously to your life. And I'm going to look at you and say, man, Anwar, hey, God said, right after I punch you in the face, God said you have heard that it's not good to be angry. You're liable to judgment. So you can't be angry with me, man. You got to forgive. You got to move on, bro. This is in the past. It's covered by, like, we can do this. We can apply God's law legalistically to others. All of us want grace for ourselves and judgment for others. If you look at your heart and your life, you want grace for yourself, and you're going to look over your sins and your shortcomings. You're going to say, man, thank God for his grace. But you're going to look at someone else who is just as bad as you are, and you're going to look and say, man, God needs to get them. How come God just lets it slide? We're legalists. We, we, we live trying to apply the law. Or, or here, here, here's the other thing that happens when we're legalists. We, we do a great job following the law, and, and, and we follow it to a T, and we feel like, man, I have got my life together because I'm following God's law. And we will find our own righteousness within our own law-keeping. I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus confronts both these ideals. To the minimalist, he says, God is serious about his law. God is serious about his law. Don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill them. See, see, we live in a day that is uncomfortable with moral codes and laws. That's our world around us. We are quick to cry legalism when something doesn't go our way. In, in the church and in culture, we, we are quick to say, man, you're stepping on my rights, though, with your law. Morality is what I make it out to be. This is prevalent in our culture, the, the world of moral relativism, that what is right for me is, is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you, and there the two shall meet. That, that you go, you live your life, I'll go, I live my life, and you can think whatever you want about sex, you can think whatever you want about media, you can think whatever you want about entertainment, you can think whatever you want about music, and I'm going to live my life my way. I'm going to live in my truth. And Jesus confronts and says, no, there is a law, and God is serious about his law. Laws are not evil. Rules are not evil. I need to hear this just as much as anyone else. Rules are not evil. We have a tendency to decide anything that cramps our personal freedom and expression is evil and terrible, and this is just not true. Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The one who follows them, he'll be great. 
We all have a tendency towards minimalistic interpretations of God's law. We, we compromise, we relax different aspects in order to make it work for us. God says you can't do that. The law isn't going anywhere. He doesn't mean for any part of it to be ignored. See, God's law brings stability and order to our world. All of our modern legal systems that, that protect our rights, they're all based off of God's law. If you look at our modern legal code, you, you will trace its history to the Ten Commandments. If, if you look at every modern piece of, 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 of legal documentation, you're going to trace it back to the, the laws in Leviticus. You'll trace it back to Jewish legal scholars kind of going back and forth and trying to interpret different aspects of the law. Literally, all, all those of you who are interested in law and, and being lawyers, I know there's a few of you in here who are looking at that as a career opportunity. If you look back at the history of legal documentation, everything flows back to the legal scholars in the early centuries, AD, who, who are going back and forth, arguing over how the laws of God ought to be interpreted. Everything we have today is based on God's law. God gives us a standard of behavior. He says, this is righteousness, and this is evil. And, and this gives us a ground in life, that, that, that if, if, if my righteousness is my righteousness, and your righteousness is your righteousness, then who cares how I behave? I can do whatever I want to you, because it's right to me. This is foolishness. But, but it's taken over our world today that I can decide right for myself and you can't tell me I'm wrong. We need God's law. God is serious about his law. One way that we can think of it, God is not just good to us, he's also good for us. God is not just good to us, he is also good for us. True freedom is found through submission to God's law. The law of God does not keep you from life, but it enables you to live life for all it's worth. You may have heard this analogy. It's like driving down a windy road without any guardrails. The law of God gives you clear guardrails and says, hey, if you go this far, you're going to fall off the cliff and your life is not going to work. God's law protects us from ourselves. God's law helps us to, to stay on the right track. Leads to human flourishing. I don't know what's best for me, but God does. What Jesus is calling us to do here, he's calling us to reverse the lie in the garden. This, this is what happened. God said, hey, don't eat from this tree or you'll die. I know it's best for you. And what was the lie? What was the lie? Surely God did not say. You, you can be like God too. What, what a brutal irony that they were already created in the image of God. They were already as like God as they would ever be. But, but the lie that mankind believed is I can be my own God. I can decide right and wrong for myself. I can live as a law unto myself. And God is calling us and, and wooing us, and Jesus is calling in this passage, come back. I have good things for you. My law is good for you. My law is, is, is to give you the fullness of life and the fullest expression of human freedom is found in the law of God. We joyfully submit ourselves to the rule of God rather than trying to establish our own rule in his place. Jesus also confronts the legalists, and he says to the legalists, law-keeping will not save you. Law-keeping will not save you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I have a problem right here. Everything just grinds for a halt. Because if you know anything about the scribes and the Pharisees, you, you, you know that they are people who take God's law incredibly seriously. They do not compromise. 
They are not minimalists in any sense of the word. The, the scribes and the Pharisees look at God's law and say, man, how, how, can, how can we follow this perfectly and fully? And, and they created other laws. In fact, I was reading today as I, as I was studying, and, and they would say, we create laws and traditions to protect you from breaking the law so that it, it, it is, the law is so far protected behind our traditions and our rules that you'd never even get close to breaking it. They, they create all these other rules and all this external stuff to, to try to hedge it in and, and, and protect it. They, they are, if anyone is holy and righteous in the eyes of the law, it is them. And Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass theirs. So if you are looking at your life and saying, man, I just need to follow this book. I just need to do this first and this first. And I just need to keep this law and this rule. If you're looking at it and saying, in, in this, I'm going to find the fullness of life. Jesus is saying, watch out. You will not find life in the law. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect is how he ends this discourse. Law keeping will not save you. Legalism is built on a fundamental misunderstanding. It's built on a thought that if I follow God's law, I will become righteous. If I just do all the right things, then I will mysteriously transform from a sinful man into a holy man. And, and this is the problem is that your sinfulness is not a result of your actions. This changed my life when I, when I figured this out. And so I probably said it before because it's such a paradigm shift. So sorry if you're hearing me on repeat, but if not, lean into this. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. I'll say it again, just let it sink in. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. The Bible says that there is something broken inside of you. And because that is broken, nothing works right. And no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, everything you do ends up falling apart and failing. All your attempts at righteousness, the Bible says, are like filthy rags because there's something broken on the inside of you. You are inside of you a sinner. And so no matter how hard you try, no matter how many good things and right things you do, you will never measure up. And so if you try to keep the law and in that find your righteousness and hope, you are going to fail. The law is a picture of righteousness, not a path to righteousness. God loves holiness, but he doesn't love you any more because you keep the law. He doesn't love you any less because you struggle in keeping the law. The law isn't a magic charm to earn the law of God, no matter how committed you are or how hard you try. Jesus provides a solution. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfill them. Jesus fulfilled the law. All of the law's requirements, all, all of the law's holy and righteous rules. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled them all. He, he died a, a death without ever once sinning, without ever once breaking the law in word, in thought, in deed. And he did it for us on our behalf. Jesus came to fix the brokenness inside of you, that broken thing inside of you that makes it so that you cannot possibly please God. Jesus wants to come and he wants to say, I want to take your brokenness, I want to give you a new heart. Your heart is broken, your, your heart cannot please God, so I'm going to give you a new heart. I, I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to make you into someone who can obey the law. I'm going to give you new life, I'm going to give you new breath. The entirety of the Old Testament law is all meant to point to Jesus. 
And Christ doesn't come preparing a means of salvation by law-keeping all of the laws fulfilled in him. He gives us a means of salvation through him. In him, we find life. So, so what do we do with the law? What do we do with the law now? If Christ is our means of righteousness and hope. Christ fulfills the law. He does not abolish it. Rather, he ups the ante and lays out a picture of, righteous, of morality by which we might draw the world to God. Your last blank in before we jump into small groups. We follow the law not to earn love, but to show love. We follow the law not to earn love, but to show love. God will not love you any less today in your sin than he will in your righteousness tomorrow. God will not love you any more today in your righteousness than he will tomorrow in your sin. God's love for you does not change based on your action. It does not change based on your mindset. It cha- it, 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 it's entirely dependent on his own personal character and God is unchanging. God's love for you will never change. Your, your actions and your work don't affect that. We follow the law not to earn love, but to show love, to demonstrate this is what love looks like. The character of God's people is one that has been shaped and transformed by love. God has given us a new heart. And so now we display what does it look like for people to live in the world with a new heart. And the rest of the chapter is devoted to short vignettes of a righteous person. This is someone transformed by the work of Jesus who has now devoted themselves to a high standard of moral living. Morality is attractive. We need to hear this in our day and age. Morality is attractive. You have a world that tells you that morality is stupid and dumb, but I'm telling you, read through the Sermon on the Mount and you're going to see, man, I wish I knew someone who was like this. I wish, ladies, I wish that you knew a guy who was looking at you for your personality and, and for your, your worth and your dignity, not for your body and what you can offer as a sex object. This is morality that Jesus offers. Men, I wish that there was someone who could show you what it looks like to be angry and not sin. To, to have power under control, to be righteously upset and indignant about the world around them and seek to change it, but not do that through violence, not, not do that through intimidation, but do that through, through love and example and, and coming alongside people and building them up. We need morality again in our culture. Yeah. We need morality again in our world. So, so what I want us to do in our small groups is we're gonna look at these at these different sections. Small group leaders, you have something a little bit different on the back of your sheets. If you want to go with that, you can. Feel freedom. But what, what, I would, what I would encourage you to do is let's look at these next few sections and examine what is Jesus doing in, in, in each of these little, little, little categories, little vignettes. What is he saying about moral people? What is the standard that he gives for them in, in anger that moral people are ones who seek reconciliation over revenge? That, that moral people are sexually pure, both in thought and deed. That moral people respect the sanctity of marriage. That moral people are taken at their word. That moral people are marked by love, even for those who hurt them. Moral people are marked by love, even for those who hate them. We can read through all this stuff, and we'll, we'll discuss that in our groups, but I'll close with this. Imagine what the world would look like if Christians truly embodied this character. Imagine what our world would look like if every one of you in this room 
would go to school tomorrow and start living out this teaching. Not out of law keeping in order to earn God's love, not in order to make yourself righteous, but because we are so loved by God that we are gonna show love to the rest of the world. We're gonna demonstrate the love of God in our actions, in our heart, in our attitudes. What would it look like? This is how the kingdom of God expands into the world. When Jesus says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, teach people to obey what I've commanded you, this is what he's talking about. Not stand up and give sermons and tell people to do better, but go into the world and live your life as a sermon. Live your life in your second period math class. Live your life at home with your parents. Live your life this weekend when you're invited to the parties and whatever's going on for you in your social life. Live embodying these characteristics and these character traits. Live embodying the love of God. And then we'll see the world transformed. We will see the world change. When God's people get on board with God's law, gosh, God's kingdom will be unstoppable. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. In the words of David, how I love your law. How beautiful are your precepts, how wonderful they are. I'll meditate on them day and night. Lord, I pray that that would be a theme of our hearts, that we would love your law deeply and richly, that your law would, would be a light to the world through us. Lord, I pray that we would approach your law not in order to find our righteousness, but that we would find our righteousness in you and then look to your laws as an example of love to the world around us. I pray you'd empower us with your spirit and be with us in our small groups. In your name we pray, amen. You can go to your groups. Middle schoolers are in the reserve couch room with me, and Pastor Gabe will tell you the rest. Oh, I almost forgot. Jesus, you are better than anything in this world.